I, I want to make the argument that Baptist churches in particular, but probably more broadly conservative Christian churches like ours, need a recovery of baptism and the Lord's Supper for corporate worship. It's sad, but despite our denominational affiliation as Baptists, I think that many Baptists don't actually know very much about baptism. And this is the one singular thing, at least in the development of modern Christianity, that marks Baptists off from most other denominations, uh, is our belief in baptism, in what we think it does, and what we're doing in it. And so we need to give greater attention to what baptism is, and the same is true for the Lord's Supper. Um, and I think both of them need increased importance in our gatherings as a church. Now, for the Lord's Supper, last week I gave the analogy that the Lord's Supper is sort of like mowing your lawn. You get to pick how often you want to mow your lawn. You can schedule it and you just do it. All you need is, you just need the church here to do the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a little bit more like shoveling snow. You don't know when it's going to snow, but you shovel it when it happens. You don't know when people will come to faith, but when, when they do, you've follow up in baptism. So when I talk about increasing our attention to baptism in our corporate worship services, I'm not suggesting that we should just start grabbing people and dunking them just so we have more, more baptism. This, that's, that's not baptism. Um, but we do need to be thinking about this more. And there are ways that we can increase the frequency of baptisms in our church. Another footnote here is just that the, the goal is not to have a ton of baptisms think especially in the Southern Baptist world, there's this idea that you need to report the amount of baptisms your church does every year, so that way you can get all the right stats, and there's this drive. It's kind of like the, the decision cards at the end of a summer camp or something like that. Well, we don't want that, so we never want to um, try to, you know, pad the stats on baptisms. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about, number one, is um, increasing our theological foundation of baptism so that as people connect to our church who have not been baptized, um, they, they sense their need to be baptized. And I think that's fairly common. And I think that's good for families to think about as children start to age and start to take on the faith in for themselves. Baptism is an important part of that, as we'll get into later. But then I also think we need to just point out that baptism is a byproduct of evangelism. Where, where a church is pursuing evangelism individually and corporately, that's a church where there will be an increase in, in baptisms. And we can't force someone to be saved. We don't try to do that. Uh, so we, we don't really even use that language of being a soul winner. It's not like we go out and we, we grab people and turn them into Christians. God saves people. Uh, but we believe that the gospel works. And as we share the gospel, people come to faith. And so we want to be growing, in, uh, growing our church in terms of baptisms through evangelism. And next quarter, it's not truly a quarter because our Bible class quarters are way off. But starting July 18, Josh is going to do an adult Bible class that's Christianity Explored. He's going to walk us through this thing. We did it as a church once at JoJo's Coffee Shop before they closed, where we invited people from our neighborhoods to come and walk through the study on the Gospel of Mark as a way of sharing the gospel. So in that quarter, Josh is going to walk our church through that, almost as if we're the group. And to equip you and prepare you so that you could do that in your home with your neighbors and friends, or you could grab another family or two in the church who live in your general area and all together, you know, try, try to have this sort of evangelistic outreach. 
So our church has those supplies, so Josh will help facilitate that. But we want to pursue um, evangelism with vigor and excitement, believing that the Lord truly saves people. But let's talk about baptism in the terms that we've uh, talked about other things in our class, and that's in expressive and formative ways. So baptism is both an expression of something and it's formative, both of the individual being baptized and of the church as a whole. So in our earlier lessons, I talked about the goodness of created matter. All, all of the world is a sacred space. This is God's stuff. And so we think about Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, where he's quoting from Psalm uh, 27, I believe. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So this divide between the sacred and the secular is really not there at all. There's this idea that um, God made the world good and he employs the good world for his worship and glory. And so all of the world, every physical thing is a sacred God-given gift. Uh, but there are certain physical elements that come with a promise. And, and we call those ordinances or sacraments or rites or practices of the church. And baptism is water with a promise. in uh, that promise has relationship to us where it forms us and where we make a promise. So God promises something to us and we promise something to God in baptism. So just as our physical postures can both be formative and expressive, our postures connected to God's promises and matter are formative and expressive. So I have this little italics line for you that is at least my logical flow of thought if it doesn't help you, don't worry about it. But we start with physical matter is sacred. It's given to us by God. Physical posture is both expressive and formative. And all of these things come together in baptism, where you have the physical matter plus a promise plus our postures that form and express. Does this make sense to, to everybody? I This is a little bit maybe of a different way of talking about what baptism is, but I think it's helpful for us, especially if we've grown up in church and we just hear baptism talked about in really general ways. That It's helpful to think about it in different terms to make us stop and think about it and to start to identify what's actually going on in baptism. And, and it will help us understand that baptism is not an arbitrary, empty, imaginary, symbolic in a pejorative way act. This act actually does something, and there's a change of identity when a baptism happens that we'll get into here in a moment. So baptism, then, is the initiatory rite of the church. When we talk about an initiatory rite, we're talking about the, like the first step into the church. Okay, So um, unfortunately, we sometimes talk about our prayer of confession of faith as the thing that identifies us as a Christian. And, and that's partly right. Um, so if you asked me, you know, when did you get saved? I might say something like, well, I prayed a thousand prayers for Jesus to come into my heart, and I don't know which one was actually it. And so when I talk about the public declaration of my faith, it wasn't when I prayed the prayer a thousand times as a child. It was when I was baptized. That's the, that's the way that Jesus gave us to declare our faith. And we, we look at that then as the entrance into the church universal. And that's one of the reasons why we require baptism for church membership. You can't be a, a member of the church unless you're a member of the church universal. And that happens through baptism. And we believe that baptism should happen by in a particular way, where it's following conversion, it's in connection with a local assembly, 
and generally speaking, it's by immersion. So, so we like to joke around about dunking people. Well, well, that's what's going on. We're fully immersing them in water. And there, are, there is a caveat here where there are baptisms that might not be able to uh, be by immersion. So you can think of instances where there's someone who's wheelchair-bound or with like open wounds on their bodies or they can't go, go all the way underwater or something like that, where there are other modes of baptism that the church has used for thousands of years. Um, pouring is probably the most common one. But there's this ancient document that talks about the ideal practices of baptisms, and it goes, if there's not this available, then, th- so if there's not running water, like a river, then a lake works. And if you don't have a lake, then a big tub works. And if you don't have any water, then sand works. You know, so, so Christians throughout the ages have tried to identify how can we um, go, like, have baptisms when situations are really complicated. So we, we look at those other ways, and we say that they're irregular forms of baptism, but they're valid baptisms. Now, there are some baptisms that we would say are invalid baptisms, and we say they're fake baptisms. They're not real baptisms. So baptisms of infants, we would put in that category. Um, uh, Baptisms that happen prior to conversion is another one of those. So I'll just briefly say something here, and that is that um, there, there are times where individuals, you know, when they're like four, pray a prayer to get saved or something like that, and then they go the rest of their life not really being a Christian, and they come to realize, I was never a Christian, even though I was baptized, you know, when I was four, and they they come to faith and actually give themselves over to the Lord, and there's a sense of baptism is the way you declare that now, and um, sometimes that's hard to trace out, so we don't try to over-pressurize people who are like, you know what, there was this like five-year period of my life where I really didn't live like a Christian, we're not trying to convince them you need to go get baptized because it feels like you became a Christian again. Maybe they were all the way along, but we try to, as we work with people and they have those experiences, as they find clarity there, if they say, you know what, I did not become a Christian until like decades after my baptism, we will, we will say, there's a way Jesus gave you to declare that. And that's important, not just in terms of chronology, but baptism actually does something to you and it has to be received by faith. So baptisms that are not received by faith are not baptisms. That's the active agent here. And that, that's our primary argument against paedo-baptism. We can't really, I guess, get into that in this class, but um, we, we just need that clarifying note of distinguishing between invalid and valid baptisms. All right, questions on that point there? Okay, I want to get into the nature of baptism here beginning with the idea that baptism is a political act. Now, this is a little bit dangerous to use the term political in our world because we only think of it in terms of like red and blue, you know, two sides of the aisle, and being political has everything to do with voting. Well, one of the issues here is just the the way that we have this, this, the way we get this word, you know, coming from the polis or the civilization or society. And there, there are more political entities than, you know, political parties in America. And the language is hard to work through here. But there's a sense where the, the smallest political unit, the smallest polis, if you will, is a family. And you can talk about the family as a political reality. Well, the church is a political reality as well. And when we start to trace the history of the church, you, you see the church established in a day where 
religion and politics and national identity were all the same thing. So to be a, and, and that's the case in most of the world today, right? So to, to be in, um, I don't know, Saudi Arabia, for the most part, is probably to have a particular religion attached to that. And regardless of where you live, you, you might even say, you, you might not say, I'm, you know, from a particular country, I'm Muslim or something like that. So, so nations and places are identified in terms of religion and politics together. This was very true of Israel as a political state. And as you read the Old Testament, you get that really clearly. To be an Israelite is to be a God worshiper and under the political rule of the Davidic king, right? Well, as that kingship is overthrown, you have Judaism sort of expanding. And I say Judaism, that's a right way to say it. If you ever want to like impress a Bible scholar, say, I was reading about Judaism the other day. And they'll like that. You can say Judaism or, or what, I forget the Judaism as well. But Judaism, if you want to be pretentious like I am right now, um, there, th it developed into multiple strands, and they were all identified as political parties with, within Israel. So you have these different groups, some that we're really familiar with, Pharisees and Sadducees. And the, the kind of ending on that term is like the party of you know, the Pharisees, parties of Sadducees. And when Christians came about, it's the party of Christ. That's more literally what's going on. And so it was originally seen as just another political religious faction within Judaism. And whenever these groups gathered, they gathered and they were called an assembly, which is the exact word that we translate church very often. And so when we talk about a church, we're talking about an assembly, which is a political unit. And we're of the party of Christ that's instructive for us on a thousand levels as we try to navigate our modern political climate to say that our core polis, our core politic, is the body of Christ made visible in local assemblies. And so we have a different uh, rulership. We have a different governance. We're, we're a different organism. We're an alternative community. And baptism is the act of entrance into that community. So it is a political act. I think we get this when we see Muslims or, or Buddhists or someone else being baptized out of you know, Islam into Christianity, and we say this is a religious act with implications for a family dynamic. But it's a larger than that. It's a full, fully political act where one is transferred from one, one group into a new alternative community, which is the community of Christ. Uh, so, so we just need to have that in mind. And when you experience a baptism, whether your own baptism or watching someone else, you need to think about it in those terms. This is not just a, you know, Instagrammable act that is like just a marker in somebody's life. It's a change in political affiliation and status. And of course, we, we live in this weird time frame that we call the already not yet, where there's the city of man and the city of God that are happening side by side. And the church is on this, it's, we have this really challenging thing to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves as we, on some occasions, subvert the city of man and some occasions we submit to the city of man. And that's a hard matrix to find, but our baptism is an act of subversion. It's saying, this is my core identity. These are my people now, and Jesus is my king. And so whenever it comes to a decision between Jesus and human rulers and authority, we, we choose Jesus. Uh, so it's, it's an intensely political 
act. Now, as I mentioned in another class, in the ancient Roman world, uh, soldiers would take this pledge to their, like, you know, ruler that was called a sacramentum. It was a, an oath of loyalty, which was a political reality as well. And that's why baptism is sometimes talked about as a sacramentum or a sacrament, at least initially, because it's a making of a pledge towards God. That's intensely and inherently political. Any comments or questions on that section? Okay, then if, if baptism is a political act, it's necessarily a community act as well because people are being added into this new polis, into this alternative community. I think sometimes we look at baptism and think it's all about the person being baptized, but it's it's mostly about that maybe, but it's also significantly about the one that person is, the church that person is being baptized into as well. Uh, so this is maybe stretching the analogy a little bit, but if a baby is born into somebody's family, a lot of that birth is about the baby, but it's not really about that baby for a long time. It's really about the family and the, the, the addition to that local community of the family that's formed. And, um, you know, there, there's a reason people get upset if like, well, I guess wives in particular get upset if their husbands are like, I, hey, I'm working today. I had something planned. I know you're delivering a baby today and I'm not going to show up. Well, there's something like very wrong about that on a number of levels, but one of them being that this child is being added to a family and that family is that one of those family members is saying, this isn't important to me. I'm, I'm not going to be there. And I think, you know, maybe that's stretching the analogy a little bit, but I think that's how we should think when someone is baptized into our assembly. We, we should try to be there because it involves us as well. They're entering into this community. It's not just a private ritual that they're going through. So uh, on page four, I just have a few points here to mention. One is that although one of the elders performs the baptism, he does so on behalf of the congregation. So it's not just the pastor and the, the baptismal candidate, it's the whole church. The baptism is uh, happening with the authority and representation of the whole church. Therefore, attendance at a baptism is important both for encouraging and supporting baptismal candidates and for affirming them as part of the covenantal community. You're, you're welcoming them into that community. So maybe a better analogy would be showing up at one of your relative's weddings. You know, like if you don't show up to your brother's wedding, your, your, sister, your new sister-in-law maybe might feel like you don't care about her, right? So you show up at the family wedding to welcome people into the family. Um, and then third, attendance at a baptism is an important part of the observer's Christian discipleship. So while you only participate in baptism getting dunked yourself one time, a baptism should be observed as often as possible as a visible and symbolic demonstration of your own salvation. Allow that to reinforce and re-image your salvation for you. And, and recall your own baptism as your pledge of fidelity to the Lord. Okay, the Christian's role in baptism, it's a decisive declaration of faith. I commented on this already, but 1 Peter 3.21 is instructive here, where Peter says that baptism now saves you, not as washing of sin away from the body, but as a pledge of a good conscience towards God. And uh, that verse, it, look it up if you want in like a handful of translations, and it's, it's challenging to translate. And most of them either say it's a pledge of a good conscience towards God, or it's a pledge from God to the person. 
And it's hard to know what it is. I, I think that it's a pledge of the person towards God. So that's what we're going with here. But your baptism is the, is the grammar for speaking your faith to the world. It's where, it's where conversion and salvation go public. So it's a decisive declaration of faith. It's a pledge towards God. And if you're trying to follow along, we're going very quickly through this section. Uh, but you, you can have that. Uh, but, but it is the way that you declare your faith in Christ. And as such, it must be done by faith. This, in, in the same way that you might look at someone's prayer for salvation as empty if they're just words, dunking into water is empty without faith. Uh, our salvation is by grace through faith. And, and baptism is one of those realms in which we find grace at work as it's received by faith. Okay, um, as I already mentioned, it's the initiatory right. This is, this is how someone enters into the covenantal community. These ideas I think we all have down. We talk about this a lot as a church, but I wanted to give you the information so you've got it there if you want to think about it more. But I want to talk briefly about uh, baptism as a redemptive historical reenactment. I think it's interesting that the New Testament authors appeal to the flood as the analogy for baptism in 1 Peter 3 in particular. So as I was reflecting on that the other day, I thought it, it might be helpful just to outline some things of how the flood and baptism connect together. Um, first, as we hopefully all know and believe, God created the world. That's evidenced in Genesis 1. But as Genesis 3 records, humans sinned and corrupted the world. And the world grew in corruption because of the sin of mankind. And in response, God destroyed the world through a flood. So where there was sin, there's judgment and destruction. But following that judgment and destruction and death, God recreated the world, reestablishing his original covenantal purposes with creation, including humans and animals and the physical elements. And in Christ, God is committed to redeeming the entire cosmos. He's redeeming the world. And um, in, in, in that's important for a uh, couple reasons. One is that God created the world so that his presence would fill the earth as the waters co cover the sea. So that as people come to know God and they carry God's presence with them, God's presence covers the globe. So the garden was like a temple that needed to be expanded across the globe. Well, now in the new creation church, as we've been talking about in Ephesians, Christ is making us a temple for the indwelling spirit of God. And as the church expands across the globe, God, God's purposes in original humanity are taking place in the new humanity, the church. Um, baptism is the way that you get into the church. And so it's almost like these acts of creation and recreation are capped with flood-like, water-like imagery. Flood on the one side, bringing in death that pays the way to life. Baptism on the other side is you enter into the new creation, passing through the waters of death and emerging in, in life as the new creation. So that this is sort of a reenactment in baptism of what God has done from the earliest days of the creation of the world. Any comments on that? That's not the only way of, of thinking about it or looking at it, but if you hear baptism and flood connected in First Peter, I think this sort of helps. All right, baptism then is a symbolic act. Now, when we talk about symbolic acts, don't we often talk about it pejoratively? Um, you know, that's, it's just a symbolic thing. You know, we wave it off as if it doesn't matter. I've been trying to go to great lengths throughout this class to say that 
the, God made the world in a way that is much more vibrant and deep and mysterious than we like to admit. We live in a really naturalistic society where you, there, there's nothing in existence that can't be explained in scientific method. And so we suppress great things like poetry and the theological imagination and other things in favor of talking about water um, as H2O. And that's the clearest, most, you know, true way of describing what water is. Well, we, we need to break out of this, like, biological reductionism, scientific only way of looking at things and realize that God has woven into the fabric of the universe his, his goodness and wisdom and grace. And he gives us ways to tap into that, that we just can't explain in scientific language. And so it's something of a mystery. And uh, I think it's good to call it that. This is a mystery. Um, and again, that, that well, we can't get into that, but, but this mystery we experience over and over again. So we might say that a hug is a symbolic way of showing affection, but you can't dispense with hugs. If, if you might write them off as just symbolic and they don't actually matter, but the reality is that hugs now create the reality that they symbolize. So symbols create the realities that they portray. And we can't explain why that is or how that is. But there's a difference between um, me telling my wife that I love her and um, never giving her a hug and me like giving her a hug and saying, I love you. Well, there's a reality that's both symbolized and created as that happens. Um, but only when it happens in good faith. Um, you, you can uh, w- well, watch movies, read books. There, there are things that happen in bad faith that are symbolic. So a meal. That's why you have gangsters who like eat a meal at a nice restaurant in the back room and then one guy shoots the other guy. Well, there's a dissonance there because the meal is a symbolic act of communion, uh, but then it's not happening in good faith and it distorts it. It turns it upside down and it's awful. Um, A kiss on the cheek is symbolic of affection and friendship in good faith. Well, Judas does that in bad faith to Jesus, and it is so much worse because of that. It, it would not have been as unsettling if Judas had just pointed at Jesus and said, he's the guy you want to grab. But, but he gave him a kiss to signify the one who was to be betrayed. The, the, these things, symbols, are unique, but they have their effectiveness, and they create the reality they intend to portray when they're exercised in faith, and they create the opposite, or they at least illustrate a dissonance when they're exercised without good faith. So someone who's been baptized without faith, it, it's showing something, I think that's really sad. It expresses a dissonance. There actually hasn't been death to sin in new life in Christ. There's a, a walking through this that's not helpful. Whereas a baptism that happens by faith, that symbol goes on to create the reality that it portrays. Where there is a, we can say that that baptism saves you, not as a washing of wave water, but as the symbol, symbol that creates the reality that it portrays. So we, we need to um, think about baptism in that way. Just as there's never an empty, meaningless hug, there's not an empty, meaningless baptism. Does, does this make sense? Okay, this, this is something that I think uh, we need to uh, keep working to deepen our reflections on. I don't think that I've thought about baptism this way for a long time. I think I used to talk about it. It's just this, like, you know, it's just a symbol, and we could do it or not do it, but we should do it probably. 
well, well, this actually does something to the person being baptized, and it changes their relationship to, into the new covenant community. It changes our relationship to them. It's a real thing. Um, a final illustration on that is your wedding ceremony. Um, there, there's a way that we could say wedding ceremonies and vows are just highly symbolic things, and we could do without them. You know, instead of getting married, just just live together, make your commitments in private to one another, and um, you just kind of know that you love each other and you know you're committed to each other. So let's get rid of this like old-fashioned thing of ceremonies and vows and all the rest. Well, I I think when we hear that, we're like that that's problematic. That those vows are not just symbolic. That ceremony you know, however it's structured, is not just symbolic. Um, it, it's a symbol that does something. It changes a status. And there is something different about the single guy and girl who come to the front um, when they get up there than when they leave after, after the guy says, you are husband and wife. There's a speech act that's happened that's changed who they are. And in our baptism, there's, I think, an act of God that happens that, that is a declaration of who we are now. And um, that, that's hard to think about sometimes because it's a bit of a mystery how that happens. How is it that a pastor's words at the front of an auditorium make people who were once not married, married? Well, I, I don't know. Um, it, it, but, but we believe it. And how is it that you can go, you can walk up the steps in, or into the pool in, in, in one way genuinely not be a Christian yet, and you come out a Christian? Well, well it's, it's hard to say what that, what that actually means sometimes, but I think we have to track with that and say they, they profess to be a Christian, and it's almost like being engaged, where you're, you're connected, but you haven't made the oath yet. You haven't made the vow, and baptism is the way that, that Jesus gave you to do that. So we want to emphasize that along the way. Any questions on that? Because may, maybe that's a bit of a complicated thing. Is, is that how, I think the, the early church kind of viewed that way too, right? If you, 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 just, you wouldn't be sort of thought of as a Christian if you hadn't been baptized. Yeah, yeah, baptism. I mean, if, if you were, you know, a Pharisee, and you said, I'm a Christian, and you were never baptized, no Christian would recognize you as a Christian. You, you haven't left the party of the Pharisees yet and joined the party of Christ. That, that's the thing that moved you from one to the other. Um, we, we would probably see that really carefully if you, were, if you talked to someone who grew up um, as a Muslim, said, well, I'm a Christian now, but I'm not going to be baptized because then everyone will know I'm a Christian. It's like, well, are, are you a Christian then? You know, what, what's made you different? What, what moved you from that community to this one? Uh, because your salvation isn't just a personal, private affair. It's a corporate reality. So, yeah, you're right. That, that's been the practice of the church forever. Other, other comments on that? I, I want to, as we end then, just emphasize that it's baptism received by faith that does this. And so, it's n- so we, we qualify, I think especially if you're coming from a Roman Catholic background, it might be unsettling to hear before you go into the waters of baptism, you're not part of the New Covenant community, you're not a, you're not a Christian, and when you come out, you are. Well, it's, th- it's by faith. Um, our salvation is by grace through faith. 
and a baptism that's received without faith is not a baptism, and, and you aren't a Christian. We, we, and, and it's not the baptism that's the object of our faith. It's Christ who's the object of our faith, and we express that through baptism. So this, this gets highly, um, I guess, technical simply because there have been so many debates about what salvation and baptism entail that it's, it's challenging to hear fully and rightly, when, especially if you're coming from a Roman Catholic or, um, or maybe a Lutheran background or something like that. But that we can't, we can't um, as Baptists in particularly, water down baptism simply because some of the things sound similar or have echoes of, of other traditions. We, we need to keep leaning into this. And um, as elders, are, there are two responsibilities that, w- that we're pursuing here. Number one is I, I'm trying to work to more clearly put this into print in a way that is not talking around things, but just showing the different um, approaches to baptism and how ours is, uh, is Baptist, evangelical Christians is distinct from Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism or these sorts of things, but also to where there was something right about some concepts that they have associated with baptism. So, that, so that's one piece that I have to keep working on. The other piece is that we, we regularly encourage people when you watch a baptism to remember your own baptism. And when we baptize people, we ask them a few questions that, that are what, what are more formally called baptismal vows. Uh, but we haven't formalized those questions. So we'll ask things like, do you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Someone will say, yes, or I do. Then we'll ask, you know, have, have you put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? Um, and then do you pledge to live for Christ the rest of your days? And they say, yes. And we say, well, I baptize you in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Well, those are baptismal vows. And in the same way that it might be helpful for you at times in your marriage, when your marriage is struggling to bust out the vows that you said to one another um, and read those. I think when you're struggling in your faith, it's helpful to think about what, what vows did I take at my baptism where I made this formal commitment to Jesus? Well, we, we need to probably more formalize, have the same set questions instead of mixing them up every time so that as people come to faith and are baptized, we, we can give them some clear hooks to hang on to as they remember these things. So I put a little, in a footnote there, a, a little example of like the first one in a more uh, traditional uh, prayer book. The, fir- the leader, it's almost like a responsive thing, but the leader, do you here in the presence of God in the church renew the solemn promises and vows made at your baptism and commit yourself to keep them? So, so there's baptismal re- renewals that sometimes churches do together. And, and so it's sort of this like um, very much like a, a wedding vow. Now there's nothing magical about those wordings. And uh, Katie and I, I think, use like just the traditional Book of Common Prayer wedding vows. Some people write their own. Um, and there's nothing magical about those words. But sometimes it's helpful to, to have the set things that, that we all are um, committing to as, as we enter into baptism and as we remember that and re- renew it together. So we plan to continue working on that.